ask people who Jesus is, and you will discover a wide variety of answers. Journey with us to the Gospel of Mark as we discover the authentic Jesus. Who do you say Jesus is? Just for the record, you guys were way better than the first crowd. I mean, you guys got into it. I was really proud of your Hosanna and your glory to God and, and all that stuff. And what about those Roman centurions? So they have a list of those inspection stickers that have run out and tags. <laughs> okay, maybe not. Hey, it's Palm Sunday. Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, the word Hosanna means save us. So when we say Hosanna, we're saying, really, Lord save us or Lord save, save me. And so we attempted to uh, make this as authentic as possible, and so we were going to have a donkey. And uh, if you hung around after second service uh, last week, you saw an amazing uh, uh, thing uh, transpire. It was trying to get that donkey into this place uh, today, and he would not cooperate, even though, uh, you know, Chrissy... Uh, uh, brought her donkey in, and, and Lauren Tark, they were helping, you know, to coach this donkey to come in, and he, and he, just, he just refuses to participate. Now, <clears throat> when you bring a donkey to church, the jokes just kind of make themselves. I'm just saying. I mean, I heard, I heard a ton of jokes, none of which I can repeat. So uh, that donkey was a real... You know, there was that joke. I heard a lot of that. And, uh, and, and then we thought about, like, taking this center picture of the donkey with cornerstone sign in the background and uh, printing out some invitation cards to invite our community uh, to come to church. And uh, the, the byline with this, even a beep is welcome at Cornerstone. <laughs> so some of you are like, so irreverent. And, and that's okay. Some of you are laughing. You're the earthy people, you know. Um, God, God's grace is able to redeem all of us. Uh, oh, man, it was hilarious. But uh, we are glad you're here today, and we're in this series in Mark. And so if you're a guest with us here today, if you're just checking back in because you've been gone, we've been going through Mark, looking at the authentic Jesus. And I'd like to show a Bible Project video to kind of get, uh, get us our mindset, to get it, us back into a spiritual place because some of you are not there yet. And, uh, and I might be one of those people. But uh, watch this video, the big overview of the, of, of the Bible, the big story of the Bible, the big story of the gospel. I hope it helps you understand what we're talking about. There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, 
this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil, and then it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back, and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends, and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why, when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus' power over evil and death has now become available 
to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. And so all the generations of the earth have been waiting for a snake-crushing king. Now, we don't say it like that. What we say are phrases like this. I wish somebody could do something about that. Right? We say, I wish somebody could fix what's wrong with me. We say, I wish there was no more war or no more whatever. Whatever the malady is, whatever the problem is, when we are wishing for someone to come. Well, Jesus is the one who's promised to come because God loves the earth. Now, we all long for this king who will save us. Hosanna, save us. Lord Jesus, save us. And so every day we're, we're longing for this. I, I can't think of a moment uh, in this past week that there wasn't a spot in the day that I wish there was an end for that person's cancer, there was a, a hope for restoring that person's marriage, there was a, 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 someone could come along and just remove addiction from this whole earth, that, that the evil that exists could just be vanquished. Well, what we've witnessed here today in Jesus coming into Jerusalem was the beginning of that end. The beginning of a new kingdom, the beginning of restoration, the beginning of salvation. And so um, we're going to pick up in the Gospel of Mark the event that we saw dramatized, and we're going to put these two thoughts together, uh, Jesus the King entering Jerusalem. Mark 11, beginning in verse 7, when they had brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead of those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus is a king of majesty and humility Waiting for our invitation, Lord, save me. So prophets like Zechariah foretold that Jesus would arrive like no other king. He said, for example, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. I mean, that is not the normal way the king of the universe would arrive. You wouldn't think that's what no other king enters their kingdom that way. But Jesus is like no other king. He's the king we've all been waiting for, and he doesn't fit into the world's categories of a king. Uh, and, and so he's, he's a lion, but he's a lamb. He's a rock, but he's also a pearl. He's the gentle brother, but he's also uh, the, 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 the rose of Sharon. He's a, he's a mighty tree. He dies like a lamb. He carried to slaughter, but he defends us like a roaring lion. I mean, Jesus is this dichotomy of a person. He, he, he links together qualities of a human that we would never think of being linked together. That he's king, but he's also 
humble who would die for his subjects. I mean, do you see that this is the king that we've all been waiting for? This is the one like no other. This is the very person we need to lead our lives. He's the only one who has a plan for redemption. And so he is a king. That means he has more authority than all the world leaders combined. He is king of the universe, the cosmos. He created it. He sustains it. He also dies to redeem it. This is the king that we worship. Now, this king will not force his authority into your life or my life. He's waiting for us to invite him in. And so as he arrives outside of Jerusalem, there are some that go out. Mark says many go out to welcome him to the outside of Jerusalem, to the exterior of the city. Welcome, Jesus. Welcome, Hosanna. Welcome, Messiah. Save us, Lord. Now, big picture, all right? Let's step back and think for a moment. Throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament, Israel is God's child. Uh, He rescues her. He sustains her. Uh, She wanders from him and worships other gods, but he keeps wooing her back calling her back, scolding her to come back so she doesn't suffer the consequences of her sins of all kinds. But but here's the point. The point is that uh, throughout the Bible, Israel has been God's child. And so what we see in Mark 11 is a parable. It's a true parable. It's a parable of Jesus, God, being welcomed by his child into her existence. So Jesus comes to the exterior of Jerusalem, and then he's going to make his way into the temple or into the very heart of Jerusalem. This is the way it works in our own lives. This is the me, what I mean by the parable. When we have crisis in our life, and we all have them, and a lot of times it's when we make our appeal to God for help. Hosanna, Lord, save me. We have a problem on the exterior of our lives. It it, it might be finances, relationship, health. It might be just a a long-lasting depression, whatever it might be. There are these problems that we are swallowed up by, and we're seeking God for help. And we say, Lord, save us. And so he comes. We've invited him. But you see, he has to go to the very interior of our existence to deal with the problem. He has to be invited in, not just to the exterior of our lives, but to the very interior of our existence. And so, uh, here's what we see. We see a recognition of Jesus' authority on the outside of her child, Israel, but it changes when he gets to the inside. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Wait a minute. Mark says there were many. Where did the crowds go? Where's all the celebration and the temple? It's non-existent. Do you see what Mark is showing us? That on the outside of Jerusalem, many people welcomed him. But on the interior of Jerusalem, on the interior of Israel, God's child, they were not ready. They were even involved in things that were evil. And, and so when, where did the clamoring crowds go? They don't, they don't show up in the temple. And, and so we have two references here that are pointing to judgment. One is 
God looked around. Jesus looked around. And the hour was late. Are the two inferences to judgment. So whenever God is silent in the Bible, the, he, is, he, is, he is assessing. He is, he is examining. He is bringing an evaluation to people's behavior. There are 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. What's going on? God is silent. God is judging. God is like uh, taking stock of what's going on in the world. And then he sends his son. And his son comes bringing this clarity, this truth, this explanation. And then people need to respond. They need to respond to who Jesus is. One of the best questions that you can ask in a conversation with someone who's distant from God, distant from church, is this. What do you say about Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? Let's talk about Jesus. And you might think, well, that's awkward. Well, that's a great place to start, though. I mean, these spiritual conversations can begin awkwardly, but I'm telling you, we wrestle with this idea of who is God in our lives. Now, anyway, the, the, re- effort, the reference to being at late is that, okay, now we've come to the end of the time that Israel was to be ready for the Messiah. He's preached for three and a half years. They've heard all kinds of stories about him. He's been teaching in the temple courts. And so these people should have celebrated his arrival to their temple, but they're not celebrating. They're too busy. And so let's continue. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for the figs. Now, what's going on here? In the Middle East, fig trees, they bloom in stages. And so the first stage of the fruit development are these little sweet nodules that provide nourishment. And uh, I've been told or read that, uh, that, that they're delicious to consume. And so Jesus sees this fig tree. It's green and leaf. That means it should have the beginning of fruit. But it's not there. When he arrives, it provides no nourishment. It's all show and no go. And some of you guys understand, or girls understand, back in the muscle car days, you could take any Nova and put a set of Kragers on it, and it might have a, a six-cylinder in it, you know, and it was not fast, but it looked good, right? Well, this is what we see here. We see, we see a tree look good, but, but, there, but there's nothing of nourishment there. And so uh, it, 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 it's dying of some type of disease from the inside out for it not to produce fruit. And so Jesus seizes this moment to teach his disciples about hollow religion. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. He wanted them to hear. Obviously, Peter heard it because he said, Mark, this is what Jesus said. And so he wrote it down. Now, this is the only miracle of destruction that I've read in the gospel of Mark. I don't even know of another miracle of destruction that Jesus performs in anywhere in the Gospels. Many of Jesus' miracles, right? He's coming along, he's healing people, he's restoring sight, he's helping people uh, 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 learn what it means to, be a, uh, to know God and then delivering people from leprosy. I mean, Jesus is always bringing goodness and wholeness to people who are broken, but here he uses this tree uh, as an example of his destructive power, his judgment power upon that which is no good. And so it's a metaphor, you see, of the nation of Israel. They have, for a long time, looked green, but they are essentially dead on the inside. 
And Jesus, God, is cursing Israel for their hollow religion, for their facade, for their acting, for their uh, looking good on the outside, but nothing's going on on the inside. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts, and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise throughout the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. This is the beginning of the end of Israel. This is where judgment begins. It's 33 AD. In 70 AD, the Roman general Titus will come down from Rome, and he will put an end to Jerusalem. He will tear Herod's temple down stone by stone. No one would have ever thought that. How could that ever be? It took a hundred years to build this temple. And Jesus says it's going to be torn down. Here he's bringing judgment upon Israel. And so it was a terrible thing uh, to, to, uh, to, to, for them to think of because this is, the very, this is their very identity, Jerusalem. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this temple. It said that miles away, you could see Herod's temple gleaming in the sun at, because it's made out of this, uh, this, this stone that has these crystals you know, that, that reflect the sun. And so Jesus, Jesus comes in and he brings judgment upon this place. And, and, and so he steps into the court of nations, uh, the court of the Gentiles. So the Greek word for Gentiles, ethnos, which means nation. So this was the place where people who were distant from God, who were non-Jews, can come and learn and pray and worship to God. But none of that is going on there. It's, 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 it's terrible. So here's one's, uh, one person's sketch of, uh, of this big temple court where there's all this business going on. In, temp, in Herod's temple uh, campus, this is the biggest section because this is the section that makes the money. Josephus says there's 25,000 lambs that are sold during that week alone. And so Jesus walks in and instead of seeing worship, instead of seeing prayer, instead of seeing rabbis explaining the Hebrew scriptures to these uh, non-Jews, he sees business going on. He sees all these money changers. And so you have different people bringing their currency in. And that currency has an exchange rate. So uh, the temple, so Herod, his kingdom, uh, Rome, uh, they're making money hand over fist. There's an exchange rate to their advantage. Uh, people are bringing lambs in and they're saying, I brought my lamb. And someone looks at, oh, no, it's disease. You need to buy one of these lambs. And so they have to buy that lamb at a higher price. And then they take that very lamb they took and they sell it to the next Joe, right? And so here's what's going on. It's a ripoff. It's a scam. It's nothing but pure, uh, but pure evil. And it's taking place at a, in an area that's supposed to be designated for people to learn about God. It's the chaos of Wall Street and the smell of a stockyard in the same moment. And God's going to have none of it. He's angry. He gets a whip out and he puts it on people's tails and he kicks their tables over. And in this moment, he gets all the world's attention. Because this isn't just a moneymaker for Herod, it's a moneymaker for Rome, and business has just ceased. And everybody's taking note that this Jesus has put an end to their racket. And so 
So here we have God clearing his, peop- uh, his temple. Now, what is a temple? A temple is a designed hotspot so people can experience God's presence. And so when we look throughout the Bible, we see there are a number of temples. So a little bit of, uh, a little bit of time to, to sort of put together a big picture. The first temple is the Garden of Eden. And so this is where God is in, is in fellowship with mankind. But you know, in the first temple, in the first Garden of Eden, sin enters that garden which separates the relationship between God and man. Then the next temple that we see in the Bible, God moves back into the neighborhood. We call that the tabernacle, which later becomes the temple proper. And then we see Jesus as the third temple. So let me put this all together. So these two circles that you see before you, heaven and earth, this is the, that, that center section is what we would say is the kingdom of God on earth. It's God moving in. And so the whole purpose of this organization we call the church, the whole purpose of the gospel is so that these two circles where God's presence is and where man's presence is, come together and become one. And so where they crisscross in this moment of time is what we call the temple, the place where God and man meet. It begins in the garden, then sin enters in, and God has to institute a sword at the outside of the garden. You can read about this in Genesis. What's a sword? about the sword is a representation of justice and so justice it means there's a there has to be some payment of penalty of sin so so this sword is separating man from god someone or something must die so that uh, the, the 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 justice of god is met and so here we have uh uh, in this diagram that I'm showing you is that we have this sword on the outside of the garden. And now, now that sword continues in this storyline of temples when we get to the tabernacle because at the tabernacle we have the institution of all these sacrifices. In the temple we have all these sacrifices where all these animals are slaughtered. What's going on there? A penalty uh, is being exacted upon these animals to push the sin forward to the cross, essentially, but this, this sword is necessary so that man can have some connection to God's presence. And then we see the sword show up on the third temple, meaning Jesus. That sword shows up at the cross, right? He is run through by, by death. He is penalized for the sin of mankind. And so that sword comes upon Jesus. So first it comes upon the animals and then it comes upon Jesus so that the presence between man and God can occur so that there's a payment for sin so that there's some way that we can come back together. And so these are three of the temples that are mentioned in scripture but there's one more that's very important to all of us. We're the fourth temple. Do you not know yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God destroys that person. For God's temple is sacred. And you together are that temple. We together are that temple. Do you realize when you came here today, you came to assemble as God's temple. We are representation of God's presence here on earth. Every time that we go out into the world, 
we are carrying God's presence wherever we go. And that little bit of God's presence is right there in our home. It's right there at our workstation. It's right there uh, on the ball field. It, it's, it's wherever we go, God's presence is moving. And so the kingdom of God is moving. And, 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 and so when we come together, we form this big temple, all us little temples, all us mobile tabernacles. We all come together to form one big temple. And may it never be said... That we come together and we're so busy that we have no time to pray and no time to worship. May it never be said that anyone would walk in here and be confused. That they would uh, come in and be uh, mystified by what's going on here. That they wouldn't understand the gospel. That's why we explain the gospel. We try to every week. We try to explain what we're doing and why we're doing it because we want people to understand that they too can have fellowship with their creator and find redemption in their lives. And so here we have this, uh, the, the, this scripture that points to us as God's temple. And may it never be said that he would walk into our temple, whether we're talking about it collectively or as individuals, and not see fruit growing, that we wouldn't be uh, an all-show, uh, you know, all no-go kind of tree, that we would be actually producing spiritual fruit in our lives, spiritual fruit that comes through fasting and Bible memorization and worship and, and serving one another, a spiritual fruit that looks like generosity and kindness and forgiveness, that, that the spiritual fruit would look like other people following Jesus, that other people would want to be in God's presence. May it never be said. And secondly, like B.A. Baracus says, pity the fool that comes against the church. Every organization, every institution, every nation, Every falseology, every false religion that comes against the Lord's church will be destroyed. And all those in those presence will be destroyed with it. It makes a difference who you run with. And this is the only team that wins. That's how narrow-minded God is. He's got one man and one plan. And that's it. Either he's right or all religions are a lie. So here's what I'm saying. You're on the winning team. Get excited about it. I'm telling you, we are bringing life to the world around. It's not just about the end. We're not talking just about the end. We're talking about bringing goodness. Why do you have public education? Why do you have education at all? Why do you have hospitals? Why do you have any doctors? Why do you have institutions of learning and, 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 and uh, uh, um, uh, places where people can get food and where places where orphans can go and be cared? Why do you have any of that? It's because of the church. It is not because of socialism. It is not because of somebody's idea. It comes out of God's people loving the grass between their feet and making a difference where they stand. That's why those things happen. And the world goes, oh, that's a great idea. We'll help you with that. And they help for a while, and then they muck it up. But anyway, 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 this is, we are God's temple. Now, as I said before, that first garden temple had a sword that kept us out. That second temple, that tabernacle temp, uh, and, and temple, it had a sword coming down upon the heads and necks of animals 
where blood would flow for the sins of Israel. And then that third temple, Jesus, the sword comes upon him and he dies on a cross. Aren't you glad the sword has not come down on you? Praise God. The sword doesn't come down on us. But a different kind of sword comes in these temples. For the word of God is alive and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attentions, the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of to him we must give an account. Now look, the sword doesn't come on us. It goes in us. And it's not to bring death. But like a surgeon's scalpel, it is to bring life and to carve out that which is killing us. Now, as I said before, this parable, this real life story that we read about Jesus entering Jerusalem, and they welcome him on the exterior, but when he goes to the interior of their heart, he is not welcomed. May it never be said of us. That that would be true. That we would not only invite Jesus into the mess of our lives that we call out to God for help, but that we would invite him into the most deepest part of how we think and feel, our identity, our behavior, what motivates us, our purpose in life, that we would invite him into every aspect of our life, our money, our relationships, our sexuality. Our, 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 our end goal, what it's all about, that we would invite him in and say, Surgeon Scalpel, I welcome your sword into my mind and my heart. To identify what is corrupting me. Carve it out. Now, many of you know that if gone undergone surgery, it's not a pleasant experience, but it is necessary. And this is what God is going to do to all of us who, well, who invite his scalpel into our lives. Now look, we can be so busy making money, we have no time for it. Some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. You need surgery, you need to go see the doctor. Your wife's been telling you, or somebody's been telling you, and you ain't going because you ain't got time, right? I get that. I mean, that's one thing. I'm just being silly here for a moment. But, but we can get so busy that we have no time to let the knife of the Lord do its work. And so, so that's the thing. You have to see this big picture that it's one thing to yell, Hosanna, save us. And it's another thing to invite him into the very interior temple of who you are and let him heal you. Make Jesus your king and dwell with him in his temple. Make him your king. What does that mean? Well, there's two groups of people. There's someone here today or some people here today and I don't, I mean, I'm not saying I have this like divine knot, but this is how it generally works. There are people who are on the exterior of the gospel. And they know that snake is wrapped around their heart. They've been bitter in relationships for a long time. They've experienced some type of hurt. And they've been carrying that around for a long time. And they know, they know they're closed off people because of what's happened to them or what they've done to themselves or whatever. I'm telling you, only Jesus, only by his authority can anyone be delivered from the snake's, you know, coil, right? And so that's one group of people. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Stand up today, 
walk down here, say, I want to be baptized in the Lord, receive God's surgeon, the Holy Spirit, and be delivered from whatever is, is, is binding you. Today's a great day for salvation. It just is, all right? And, 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 and then there's another group of people. And, and you're probably like, when I come to this conclusion, you know, in studying this, I'm like, I, you know, there's some places in my life, in my speech, in my action, in my judging others, in my words that need a scalpel's touch, right? That need to be carved out and removed from, from who I am. And so for this other group of people, that's probably the majority here, allow this king to go to the very interior of who you are and welcome him to remove whatever needs to be removed. It's not always pleasant, but it is absolutely necessary. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity that we have just to take a few moments and consider the bigger picture of what's playing out when Jesus enters to Jerusalem. And Father, I ask that you would bring your scalpel upon the hearts here that are trapped and coiled up in that snake of pornography or, or, or jealousy or, or envy or, or, or lying or addiction or whatever it might be, Father, that you would bring your sword upon that snake's head and lop it off, Father, and give them freedom and new life that is absolutely possible in Jesus. And for us, Father, that have walked with you for a long time, that have tried to be your disciples, that we're inviting you to every aspect of our identity as a follower of Jesus, that we, that we would sense your presence in the, in the closets of our heart, and that you would open up our mind and into the deepest areas and we would find our identity completely in you and healing completely in you. And that you, you, would, you would show us, Father, that, that you are not only king on the outside, but king on the inside. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. You can find us on the web at cornerstonechatham.org.